Hello and welcome to the 41st, can you believe it, the 41st edition of Geeking with Destination Venus. Here again with another hour of key news, views and general stuff. And just on basically geek trivia, it's fun to see that uh, the three Spider-Men, Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire and Tom Holland, have got together presumably ages ago, if we're honest, to recreate that Spider-Man pointing at things meme as part of their promotion for the launch of Spider-Man No Way Home on uh, what they're still rather quaintly calling home video. When was the last time anybody actually saw a videotape? Anyway, irrelevant. Uh, it's just cool to see stuff like that. Uh, I like it when actors and companies and promoters just lean in to the geek culture that surrounds their product. Uh, you can follow the link and find out when stuff's getting released in various places in the show notes, which, incidentally, yes, I know. The problems I said were over with clearly weren't, uh, but I know the show notes are up. Even as I record this hours before the show goes live, I know the show notes are up because I finished them first. Okay, I actually did the show notes this week while I was writing the script for the show. And yes, this show does have a script. It's a loose one, but we do really plan this stuff. I don't know whether that makes everything that follows less excusable or more excusable, but it is planned anyway. So the show notes will be there this week because they're already done. And obviously, I think that's clearly the procedure I need to follow from now on. So I can say with some confidence that if you go to www.destinationvenus.co.uk and click on the blog button, you will find this edition of Geeking with Destination Venus. Just scroll down until you find episode 41. Um, it probably has a nutty title, but as I record this right now, I haven't decided what it is. OK, on to actual news now. Now, you may recall last autumn, I got quite excited because it was announced that a reboot of the classic 90s sci-fi show Babylon 5 was in the works at the CW. Now, OK, it's the CW, let's not get too excited. But even so, Babylon 5 possibly coming back. Then it didn't get a pilot order. And that made people kind of think, well, that's not going to happen then, is it? Uh, J. Michael Straczynski, the show's creator, has been clarifying matters just a little bit. Um, he maintains that uh, Mark Pedowitz, who, who is the, the big boss at the CW, is a fan of the show. Um, and that Pedowitz was working at Warner's when the show was first airing. Given how Warner's treated the show at the time, that's maybe not the best endorsement. Um, but he says the Babylon 5 reboot is still in active development. And as far as Straczynski is concerned, yesterday, that's a couple of days ago now, but you know what I mean. Babylon 5 was in active development at the CW and Warner Brothers for the autumn of 2022. He called it the fall, but I'm not doing that. Uh, and that now it's in active development at the CW and Warner Brothers for autumn of 2023. And that that's the only thing that's changed. We shall see. I mean, if you are a fan of Babylon 5, you are used, well used to scheduling messing about. Uh, Warner absolutely ruined the original show 
by Umin and Arin over whether it was going to get its fifth season or not. So Straczynski crammed all the important stuff that you know he needed to tie up all the loose story ends into season four, making season four seem quite rushed. Uh, but, you know, making sure the stories were satisfyingly finished. And then after he'd done that, Warner's greenlit season five. And suddenly he'd tied up all his story arcs and was left with the stuff that wasn't important enough to leap to put into season four, which is why Babylon 5 season five is so disappointing. So, you know, we're used to this stuff. Does it need a reboot anyway? Well, does anything? Um, Straczynski says the reboot is a from the ground up reboot uh, and will focus on John Sheridan, who you'll remember as the second commander of Babylon 5 in the original show. Um, and his arrival triggers uh, destiny beyond anything he could have imagined when an exploratory Earth company accidentally triggers a conflict with a civilization a million years ahead of us. If you know the original show, obviously they're going to focus on the Shadow War. That was the best bit of the original show. Do we need to tell the same story again? I genuinely don't know. I mean, I keep thinking, why would you do this? What's the point of telling the same story again? And then I remember the Battlestar Galactica reboot and think, oh yeah, no, yeah, that's why. Um, maybe with better special effects, a bigger budget, um, just the technology that we have now that we didn't have in the 90s, maybe they can do something special. I do worry, though. I mean, one of the things that carried the original Babylon 5 show was the performances of the lead actors. Uh, Michael O'Hare, who played Jeffrey Sinclair in the original season, uh, the original commander of Babylon 5, uh, the awesome Claudia Christian as uh, Lieutenant Commander Ivanova, uh, Andreas Katsoulas as Jakar, a character with one of the greatest character arcs in the whole of science fiction television, um, Peter Jurisic as London Malari, and, uh, and so on and so on and so on, Mira Furlan as Delenn, Bill Moomy as Lanier, just amazing performances. I've, I've plugged this show before. If you have Amazon Prime, just go and watch Babylon 5 on IMDb TV. It's free with ads on Amazon Prime. The ads are annoying, but, you know, it's the price you pay for not paying a price. And just revel in it because it is an amazing piece of work. Go watch it for yourself, then decide if you think it needs a reboot. I would genuinely welcome opinions on this. Uh, info at destinationvenus.co.uk if you have an opinion you'd like to share. And staying with geeky television, there is movement at Marvel, sort of, kinda. Um, you will remember that the TV shows that kicked off Marvel doing good TV were all on Netflix. And you will also know, if you follow these things, that they're leaving Netflix very, very soon. So soon, in fact, that um, I decided not to even attempt a sneaky rewatch of all the best bits before they disappeared, because I knew there wouldn't be time. And I was kind of assuming they would turn up somewhere else. And it turns out, my optimism was probably well-founded. Um, we can't say anything definite yet, but they are leaving Netflix at the end of February, and they will be arriving alongside Moon Knight at Disney Plus 
in March. That's March the 16th. I can even give you an exact day. Except they're only doing that in Canada, at least so far as we know right now. Um, it's been announced that Disney Plus Canada is going to have them. No word on Disney, US, Disney Plus in the US or in the UK or indeed anywhere else. Just Canada. Um, it sort of follows, though, doesn't it? That if Disney Plus have got it anywhere, they'll have it anywhere, everywhere before too much longer. Um, the House of Mouse owns the House of Ideas. Um, they own the, the IP. Netflix's rights to that IP no, no longer apply. I, I would imagine Netflix is going to want some kind of compensation. Um, but, you know, none of this is difficult. And if they are bringing characters from the Marvel Netflix series into the Disney Plus MCU universe, and they already have, it makes sense that they're going to want the original shows to be available. Uh, and once they are, of course, if they are, that means that further TV series featuring Luke Cage and Daredevil and The Punisher and so on could just pick up where the original shows left off. Now, I know Disney kind of shies away from some of the violent stuff that was in the Netflix shows. But they do have that kind of content on Disney+. Plus. It's not all PG-13. So this could happen. We could get Daredevil Season 4. We could get Luke Cage Season 3. We're probably not going to get Iron Fist Season 3, and we're definitely not going to get Defenders, but we could get a Punisher Season. I, I don't see why that wouldn't work. And I, honestly, given the fan base that these shows still have, I can't see that Disney Plus wouldn't want to capitalise on it. I mean, they have a need for content. This content is popular. Why would they not build on that library? That is obviously idle speculation, but it's it makes sense to me. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed because I really, really want to see that. I'm even here for another season of Iron Fist because seriously, at the end of season two, it was actually starting to get watchable. And staying with Disney Plus, and yes, other TV channels are available, but somehow everything good seems to be on Disney Plus right now. What can I tell you? Obi-Wan Kenobi is coming back to our screens uh, in his own Disney Plus TV show. Uh, Ewan McGregor comes back to reprise the role uh, alongside Hayden Christensen as um, Anakin Skywalker, which I may not be that keen on. Uh, no disrespect to Christensen, who is actually a much finer actor than he was ever given a chance to demonstrate in the prequels. But do I want more of that relationship? I think what I really want from an Obi-Wan series is this scatty old loner who's been alone for far too long, keeping an eye on Luke Skywalker and trying to keep a low profile. Maybe a little bit of villain of the week stuff, um, you know, being a, a mysterious helper to people on Tatooine, but not ever being seen. That kind of thing I would have liked much more than what I think we're going to get. But again, I don't bet against Lucasfilm. They partially dropped the ball with the Book of Boba Fett, but for all its flaws, I still enjoyed that. So who am I to complain? Anyway, that's not why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this. Because something awesome 
is going to be part of the Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show. John Williams has composed some brand new Star Wars music for the first time in forever. And that is music, literal music, to this old geek's ears. Because if you are a young person, you've grown up always knowing what the Star Wars theme was. And it probably seems a little bit ordinary to you now. But I'm an old person. I remember first hearing the Star Wars theme and being completely, as a five-year-old, blown away by it. And I really do think it's fair to say that John Williams' music was a huge part of the success of the original Star Wars film. It's thanks to John Williams that the whole of the Star Wars universe has this very distinctive and completely unique sound to it. So the fact that the master is coming back is just great news. So while I might have some reservations about the plots and the content of the show, at least it's going to sound good. Well, the theme will. Uh, there's no word yet on who's going to score the actual episode. But if John Williams is involved in the theme, presumably whoever's going to score the whole thing is going to be drawing from that. So we're still going to have that John Williams sound throughout each episode, which, you know, good news. Very good Star Warsy news. And we all need as much of that as we can get. And just because I've got something approaching an apposite but fairly cheesy segue, it's time to have a look at what's going on in... Because everybody wants to get a little bit of Star Wars and astronomers are announcing that a ground-based telescope has detected what they're actually describing as a Tatooine-like planet orbiting a binary system, uh, which means it would have twin suns and twin sunsets exactly like Tatooine in Star Wars. No word on how much sand there is on Kepler-16b, uh, which is the exoplanet in question. Um, What's cool about this, um, if we strip away the Star Wars nonsense, um, which is basically clickbait, uh, is that this discovery was made with, by the standards of this kind of discovery, a fairly modest telescope. Um, it was a, a 193 centimetre telescope. That's, you know, two metres, less than two metres wide. That's not the biggest light bucket in the world. And yeah, it'd be big for your back garden, but it's not big for this kind of astronomy. Uh, it's uh, The discovery was made by the Observatoire de Haute-Provence, uh, which I'm probably just butchered the name of, which is about 60 miles north of Marseille. Uh, but, yay us, um, the research team was led by the University of Birmingham. Uh, and they are very excited about this. They are saying that it clearly shows the value of using a ground-based telescope for these kinds of observations because it's much more efficient and significantly cheaper than using space-based astronomy. Uh, and of course, also, if we can do this from the ground, uh, imagine what we can do in space and space stuff is coming soon. Um, obviously, the name gives it away. Kepler-16b was originally found using uh, the now-retired Kepler Space Telescope. Um, and it was it was found using the transit method. So 
they were looking at the binary stars and noting that they dimmed with a regular frequency, indicating that the light from the stars was being blocked by a planet going past them. Incredibly sensitive, um, incredibly sensitive detections and measurements to make there. Uh, the French-based telescope confirmed the existence of this planet um, using the radial velocity method, which looks at the gravitational effect that the planet has on its parent star, or in this case, stars. Uh, basically, the planet's gravity makes the stars wobble, and they can measure that too. And I know it boggles my mind, but they actually can. So this obviously, obviously means that these researchers could find yet more previously unknown planets, uh, and that can help us learn how planetary formation occurs in a solar system with two stars, which currently we don't have a lot of data on. We, at the moment, sort of have the consensus opinion that planets form in a what, what's described as a protoplanetary disk of gas and dust surrounding a young star, but a binary system might not enable that to happen. Um, so, you know, there's there's interest in figuring out because if what is described as a circumbinary planet, uh, that is to say, something that orbits a binary star, if they're formed differently from the way we from this protoplanetary disk of gas and dust that we think forms planets in a single star solar system, well, if they can form differently in a binary system, maybe we're wrong about how they form in what I'm going to call a conventional solar system, because I think most solar systems are single-starred. And that, again, could tell us an awful lot about how planets form and just where we come from. So, you know, kind of exciting, to me, at least. I'm sticking with astronomy, but moving into space now, we have what will continue to be our semi-regular James Webb Space Telescope update. Um, we're not doing a weekly anymore because, frankly, not that much is happening. But the instrument is now at the Lagrange point and beginning operations. Uh, everything is set up. Um, it's not completed the first phase of the alignment process, but it's getting there. And the reason we know that is because we have our first image. So the first bunch of photons have been captured. Yes is just a fancy NASA way of saying they took a picture. There's a photograph. Um, it was taken using the uh, observatory's primary mirror and the near-infrared camera. Now, the issue was basically just to confirm that the near-infrared camera, or near-cam, was ready to collect the light of stars from far away, and that they could then identify starlight from the same star in each of 18 of the primary mirror segments. Because this thing is not just one mirror, it's lots of mirrors. So lots of images that have to be composited. It's complicated. Um, but now they've got that, they can use that to focus and bring the thing into full alignment. That's going to happen over the next month or so uh, as the team on the ground very, very gently adjust the alignment of each of the mirror segments until what is currently showing as 18 images becomes a single point of light, a single star. Uh, and it is going brilliantly well. 
thus far. Uh, so what may be the most expensive astronom astronomical instrument ever constructed, and certainly one of the riskiest observation missions that NASA has ever undertaken in terms of whether it could fail or not, is not just going well, it's performing better than expected and could have, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, a lifespan maybe double what it was originally thought to be capable of. So no actual amazing new pictures yet of the type that we're so used to seeing from Hubble and no groundbreaking data yet of the type that, again, we're used to seeing from instruments like Hubble and the late lamented Kepler and others. But it's pretty clear that once this thing is fully online and fully operational, the results are going to be absolutely spectacular. And I am so looking forward to reading all of the discoveries this amazing machine is going to make for us. Uh, more on that, uh, including a, a link to a great article from the NASA website in the show notes. Once again, they can be found at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Click on the blog button and uh, scroll down until you find Geeking with Destination Venus, episode 41. Now, I'm not sure why I'm reporting this, but the battle of the space billionaires continues as uh, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic operation announces that it is reopening ticket sales for space tourists. Um, this was actually last week and somehow I missed it. But as of Wednesday, February the 16th, anyone who wants to take a flight into kind of sort of more or less space can want a bet. Book a trip with Virgin Galactic. Uh, it's only reopening its ticket sales temporarily. Um, you're going to need a reasonable amount of cash. Uh, you, you need to place a deposit of 150,000 US dollars and you'll need to find another 300,000 US dollars before you fly because the total ticket price is a whopping 450,000 US dollars, which is significantly above the 20,000 pounds or so mark that Richard Branson's company was originally touting way, way, way back in the early 2000s when Virgin Galactic was first getting started. Um, as of November last year, it was reported that Virgin Galactic had 700-ish customers um, with sort of pre-ordering tickets uh, and their plan was to start flying those customers on commercial flights in late 2022. Um, yeah, they seem to be sticking by that timeline. I'm still not 100% convinced. Um, there's lots of rhetoric. Uh, there's a link to the space.com article uh, about this in the show notes, um, which includes what I'm going to call most of the usual guff from the Virgin Galactic CEO, Michael uh, Colglazier. Um, you know, stuff about space being transformational. Um, it, yes, yes, I'm sure it is. But nearly half a million pounds a ticket, it's not going to transform that many people, is it? And 
I'm still actually quite cynical about what is happening here. Because you ain't going into space with Virgin Galactic. You don't get high enough. It'll be a cool thrill ride. And, you know, genuinely, there are things about Virgin Galactic's space plane approach that I really, really like. But though there is huge potential for the Virgin Galactic space planes, I don't see them realising it anytime soon. Um, basically, if you're unfamiliar, uh, and good good lord, if you've been listening to this show for any amount of time, how can you be unfamiliar? I bang about on about this all the time. Uh, the Virgin Galactic approach is different from the Blue Origin or SpaceX approach, both of whom use capsule mounted on top of a rocket. A Virgin Galactic is basically a big jet plane which carries a smaller rocket plane underneath it. You fly up high into the atmosphere using the, the lift of the jet plane, which then drops the rocket plane, which ignites its rockets and heads on further up. Now that's a very efficient way to launch rockets because it means your rocket is not fighting its way through the thick atmosphere at ground level. It's flying always under its own power in thin, much thinner air, which means you need less fuel, which means it's cheaper, which means it's also safer. And it's it's a good approach to doing things in low Earth orbit. Although I will have to point out that at the moment it couldn't really do much in low Earth orbit because the only really important stuff in terms of human spaceflight to do in low Earth orbit is to dock with space stations, which the current Virgin Galactic space planes cannot do. And in any case, they also cannot carry very much. Uh, the current design can take six passengers and two pilots. And you're going to get a few minutes of weightlessness and see the curvature of the Earth from suborbital. Heavy air quotes, space. Um, now, it's proven technology. Uh, the Virgin spaceship Unity has flown uh, suborbital four times so far. Um, but it's currently un undergoing maintenance and enhancement, um, uh, as is the uh, Virgin mothership Eve, which is the jet plane that carries the spaceship. Um, and that's expected to go on until the middle of this year. Um, now, there are two other space planes being worked on so that they can expand their operations. Um, but... I've got to say, Virgin Galactic, which was, to my recollection, the first of the companies to get into this game, is lagging terribly far behind. Uh, both Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin and Elon Musk's SpaceX. Um, uh, Elon Musk's company is far and away in the lead here. Um, so we'll watch this with interest. Personally, it's nearly half a million dollars, and I'm. I'm going to have to say that if you've got half a million dollars to spend, don't spend it on this. So moving on to something a little bit more serious in space, uh, the Planetary Society, of which I am a proud member, full disclosure, um, has announced the winners of the 2021 Shoemaker Neo Grants. These are 
sums of money granted to advanced amateur astronomers uh, from around the world. The Planetary Society is an American organisation, but the grants are available to anyone anywhere in the world that's doing good work in the field of finding, tracking and characterising near-Earth asteroids. The grants are named for the pioneering planetary geologist Gene Shoemaker, uh, who, among other things, uh, was the guy who co-discovered the Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet that crashed into Jupiter uh, back in the... God, was it the 90s? It might have been the 90s. Oh, I feel old now. Um, and the Planetary Society uh, awards these grants to anyone who's helping to make Earth just that little bit safer. Uh, so this year, um, the Vlad Vladimir Benishek of uh, the Sopar Astronomical Observatory in Serbia was uh, awarded $9,500 to uh, buy a new 24-inch mirror uh, to use in a new telescope he's building that will allow him to observe, well, him and his team, to observe much fainter asteroids. Um, they're mostly going to be looking at asteroid characterization studies. Uh, that's where you are looking at an asteroid to determine its properties. So how fast does it spin? Is it one lump of rock or is it a binary pair? Um, that's the kind of information that we're going to need if we have to deflect asteroids at any particular time. Uh, and of course, it can help just with understanding asteroids in general. Um, Fabrizio Bernardi and Myra Tombelli of, um, I'm going to have a go at this, um, Gruppo Astrofili Montelupo. I can't speak Italian. I'm not even going to give a go at that. Um, they're at the Beppi 40 Observatory in Italy. They've been awarded $13,000 for a new camera with a much larger CCD detector. That's the chip that does the camera stuff. Check out me being all technical. Uh, but that's going to give their telescope a much larger field of view, uh, which will, again, enable the detection of fainter near-Earth objects um, uh, and allowing longer observations uh, while still keeping a moving object within the field of view. Um, so, again, that's going to help keep stuff visible. Uh, Massimo Calabresi, uh, Roberto Harbour and Raniero Al Albanese I wrote this down. I've never heard it said out loud. Avasosian Romana Astrofili in Italy are awarded $7,329 uh, for a more sensitive camera and new filters. Uh, and you can see these are all fairly modest things. Um, Gary Hug, David Cromer, Doug Goodwin and Russell Valentine of the Northeast Kansas Amateur Astronomers League um, have been awarded $11,591. And I do love that $1 at the end. Uh, so that they can replace their very old decade-old camera uh, on their 0.7-metre telescope um, with better, newer technology, uh, which will allow them to improve and increase follow-up of faint near-Earth objects and asteroid characterization. Um, now, this isn't the first time this team has been awarded a Shoemaker grant. Um, they also were awarded one in 2018. Uh, so their work is very, very well recognised. Um, I could go on. Uh, there are amateur astronomers and astronomy groups in Brazil, uh, Croatia, uh, Chile, France, 
all being awarded relatively small amounts of money uh, by the Planetary Society so that they can do the work of planetary defence and finding potentially hazardous near-Earth objects. Uh, they can do that just that little bit better, that little bit more efficiently. And I love that the Planetary Society does this. Um, it's one of the things that makes me proud to be a member. Uh, and yet I am kind of promoting the Planetary Society now. It's not a paid ad. It's just something I believe in. Um, they they do these small-scale science funding, small-scale science projects that just disproportionately advance the knowledge that we have. Uh, the Planetary Society is still currently flying its own little spaceship, LightSail 2, uh, which is looking at using solar sail technology for propulsion. Uh, now, this thing, it's its tiny. It's less than a foot square. Um, but it's its using light from the sun as propellant. And it was supposed to have crashed by now, but they keep finding ways of improving the way they use the sail to gain more altitude in orbit so that it hasn't crashed into the atmosphere yet like they thought it would have done months ago. And... Again, this is cutting-edge stuff. NASA are learning from the Planetary Society on this. So, you know, very, very proud to be a member of the Planetary Society. Uh, there is a link in the show notes to information about all of this, but also information about how you can find out more about the work of the Planetary Society and how, if you feel so inclined, you can join. Uh, it's a cool club to be part of. Seriously, I mean, what could be geekier than being part of an organisation that owns its own spaceship? and Unless you're a billionaire, joining the Planetary Society is probably the only way to do that. So check out the show notes, www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Go to the blog section and find episode 41 of Geeking. And finally, in space, if you have your own telescope or your own decent pair of binoculars, um, there are still some interesting things to see in the regrettably pre-dawn sky this week. Um, I ain't going to see any of these because I am not an early riser. I need to wait until things are visible in the evening. Uh, but if you are up in the morning with binoculars or a telescope to hand, uh, Venus is still ridiculously bright in the east. Um, and Mars, Mercury and Saturn all still visible, very low on the horizon. You are going to need good visibility to the lower horizon here you probably aren't going to see mars mercury and saturn from a town center because stuff will be in the way uh you can check out the planetary society's what's up page for more information and there's a link to that again in the show notes or just google the planetary society and um, check that out and actually while i'm plugging the planetary society let's do it properly uh you can also subscribe to the Planetary Society's podcast, uh, Planetary Radio, which uh, is available where all good podcasts are found. If you look, if you found this, you can find Planetary Radio. Um, it's weekly, and it is always, always fascinating. Hosted by the incredibly enthusiastic Bruce Betts, um, it's just. If you're a space geek, you should be listening to it. It is just that simple, but. Now, that's it for space. Time to move on. Spaceman, 
And of course, if we're done with space, then it must be time for... And we're going to start with a little bit of good science news. Because heck knows, we get little enough good news of late. So, what's my good news? Well, you will be familiar with our civilization's dependency on oil. It's something that we're trying to shake, but it's something that is still very much an issue. Uh, something that's been brought into rather sharp focus by recent events in Ukraine. But oil is problematic. It's problematic for many reasons. And no, I'm not about to bang on about climate change. You'll be happy to know. I'm going to leave that subject for another day. Um, but oil isn't just problematic when you burn it. Oil is incredibly problematic when you spill it. And over the decades, we have been quite careless with spilling oil all over the place. And it's genuinely horrible stuff. Useful, yes but incredibly destructive. So we need to understand how to get rid of it and how long it takes to get rid of an oil spill. And researchers have figured out that sunlight may, may, we're not sure about this yet, but may have helped remove as much as 17% of the oil on the surface of the Gulf of Mexico following the 2010 Deepwater Horizon disaster. Now, that means that sunlight plays a significantly bigger role in breaking down oil than we previously thought. Um, now, how this works is that when sunlight, and I didn't know any of this, this is fascinating to me, when sunlight shines on oil in the sea, it can kick off a chain of chemical reactions, which breaks the oil down into new compounds. Some of those reactions, not all, but some, can cause photodissolution, which basically means it makes the oil soluble in water. Uh, but up until recently, there has not been that much data about how much of the oil becomes water soluble under these conditions. Uh, so Environmental chemists from the uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts, uh, Daniel House Freeman and Colin Ward, I think they're called, um, got samples of the oil from the Horizon spill, uh, put it on glass discs and irradiated them with light uh, of the same wavelengths that you get in natural sunlight. They then analysed the oil they shone the lights on uh, to see how much of it had become uh, dissolved organic carbon. Uh, now, it seems that the most important factors in whether this photodissolution phenomenon happens are the thickness of the slicks and the wavelengths of the light. So wavelengths towards the red end of the spectrum, the longer wavelengths, dissolved less oil than wavelengths towards the blue end of the spectrum, the shorter wavelengths. Um, that they speculate, well, actually they're scientists, so they hypothesize um, that this is because wavelengths to the red end of the spectrum are scattered more easily by water. 
Now, this is all very preliminary, and I don't really see uh, that they're going to be using floodlights to dissolve oil slicks in the real world anytime soon. But it is at least another potential arrow in the arsenal that uh, might help us deal with future oil spills. And I can't help thinking that there will still be more. However much we try to move away from the hydrocarbon economy, uh, it's going to be a long time before we've weaned ourselves off this stuff. So anything that takes the science forward is to be welcomed, I would say. And finally, in the science segment this week, uh, a story that just underlines how little we know still about the planet we're currently standing on, unless you're sitting on it, in which case, how little we know still about the planet you're currently sitting on. There's a new study which suggests that the inner core of the Earth might be stranger than we thought. And I think we thought it was pretty strange anyway. Uh, the speculation is that the inner core may comprise a substance that is neither solid nor liquid. Now, for more than 50 years, the consensus has been that the very deepest points of the planet um, was basically a molten outer core surrounding a very densely compressed ball of solid iron. Maybe iron. Well, the iron alloy might be more accurate because there would be impurities in there. But basically, very dense iron, molten, surrounded by molten thing. Um, but New research published in Nature, and again, this was last week, it was February the 9th, um, and I just missed the story, um, suggests that Earth's hot inner core, which is obviously highly pressurised because of the weight of the whole of the Earth on top of it, um, exists in what they're calling a super-ionic state, which would make it a kind of boiling spinning, whirling mixture of hydrogen, oxygen and carbon, um, just sloshing through a sort of iron lattice work. Um, it's very hot down there. The pressure is very great down there. Um, and so we don't actually have direct evidence of anything, but the study is indicative. Uh, they've used seismic technology and that kind of stuff um, and then crunched all the numbers in a massive supercomputer. Um, this is more of a, ooh, isn't that weird story than a, here's a thing we've learned, because there's still a lot we don't know about this. And this hypothesis could be incredibly wrong. Uh, but it's something to keep an eye on, because I don't know about you, but... I have to live on the planet. I'd quite like to know what it's made of and how it works, just out of, you know, general interest. So we will be keeping our eye on this aspect of geology. But for now, that's it for this week for science. And so it's time to have a look at the comics recommendations for the week. And I've got to be honest, there are a couple of absolute doozies in here. So I think we'll start with the most mainstream, and that is Ghost Rider issue one from Marvel Comics. Now, Ghost Rider is a, a character that's been around for quite some time and um, has indeed been the subject of two 
Nicolas Cage films. One of them's quite good. And he's a character that's been through some changes, as Marvel often does. Uh, the mantle's been taken up by more than one character. Um, I think there are three Ghost Riders at the moment. But the one featuring in this Ghost Rider issue one is the original, Johnny Blaze. Now, the backstory of Johnny Blaze is he was a motorcycle stunt rider uh, because Ghost Rider was created in the 70s when Evil Knievel was a thing. And he had an accident and was possessed by the spirit of vengeance. Uh, the idea is that when evil has been committed and people have been wronged, the spirit of vengeance possesses Johnny Blaze uh, and he becomes a school-headed, fire-aflame, motorcycle-riding, vengeance dude. Uh, and lots has happened to him since that basic premise was launched in the 70s. Uh, he's been king of hell. He's done all sorts. But we find him in issue one of the new run of Ghost Rider a bit confused. He thinks he's happily married, um, but his memory's a bit fuzzy and he has headaches. And occasionally he hallucinates monsters. But he's getting therapy and he understands that a few weeks earlier he had a serious motorcycle accident, uh, which is the cause of the headaches. Uh, there's a bit of brain injury going on there. And that's where the nightmares that he's having are coming from. And it's an interesting approach because we know as readers that the hell of the Marvel Universe definitely exists for the Marvel Universe. And so if he's hallucinating demons, they could actually be demons or he could just be hallucinating. A really nice way to start the new series of an established character because as an audience, you don't need to know anything that's come before. It, we are working stuff out as Johnny Blaze is working stuff out, as he works through what is real and what is not. And the book's gone back to its horror comic roots. Uh, back in the 70s, you couldn't really do horror comics. So Ghost Rider was one of the characters they tried to introduce as a way of getting round the anti-horror comic rules. You can do horror comics now, and I have to say, Ghost Rider's doing it properly. There is genuine horror here. Benjamin Percy delivers a tight and claustrophobic paranoid script. Uh, there's some nice art from Corey Smith, who really does know how to draw a monster. And the colours, which actually are really important in Ghost Rider, because you've got to be able to do flames well, um, from Brian Valenza. On point. Absolutely great. That's out this week. Um, it's expensive, even by Marvel Issue 1 series, uh, standards. It's four ninety nine. It is slightly larger than a regular comic. Uh, that's more pages, not page size. Um, and we're celebrating 50 years of Ghost Rider. I think this is a nice way to celebrate it. Um, so check, check that out. And then, with a screeching change of both pace and direction, our next recommendation is The Killer, Affairs of the State. Uh, this is from a fairly small, fairly arty publisher uh, called Archaea. Uh, and it's very different because it's not American. It's French. And the French have a very different approach to comics. This is the story of a guy who used to be a hitman, but who was caught 
and who subsequently became an agent of the French government because that was the only choice they gave him. And it's much slower paced and much more cerebral than an American version of this kind of story would be. Uh, he is on assignment. He has a very boring office job as cover, which he hates and which has helped him understand that, yeah, an ordinary life as an office worker was not something he could ever have done. The kind of life he lives may have its complications and its moral grey areas, but he made the right choices for himself, he believes. Uh, there's a lot of philosophical thinking like that in here. He and his partner have been assigned a new target. And they're wondering why. They're wondering why they've been pointed at this particular guy who could easily be taken care of by the French legal system, the, the regular police, the regular courts. There is due process that could cope with the things this guy is doing. So they're wondering what else is going on. And we have no answers yet. It's only issue one. Uh, it's a great book. The original French script uh, by a writer called Matz uh, is suitably, not claustrophobic exactly, but tense. And you feel the boredom of our hitman character. Um, obviously, I don't speak French. Uh, the translation into English by Edward Govin, uh, I think, works. There's poetry in his words, and that's difficult to do in translation. I have to assume that he's done a very good job of um, conveying not just the meaning, but also the sense and the spirit of the original script. Uh, the art uh, by Luke Giacomo is gloriously understated. Um, wonderful use of colour. Again, um, the colour palette is brilliant. There's uses of greens and browns and really conveys atmosphere. Uh, and so I commend it to you. It's from, as I said, Archaea. Uh, it is 4.50 and out this week. And finally, in our recommendations this week. Um, well, actually, just before we do the final one, I am just going to point out that there's a new season of Firefly comics out this week, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. And I'm never going to let the fact that there's a new issue of Saga go past without comment. If you haven't read Saga, you need to. It's that simple. The first nine, vol nine volumes are available in collection. Uh, we're starting volume 10. We're two issues into volume 10 in single issues. If I were you, I would find a bookshop and buy all nine volumes at once. Just trust me on this. Destination Venus has them. So do other good bookshops. Uh, and then find a comic store and get yourself up to date. It is the most wonderful story. I'm not going to bang on about it anymore, but it is just brilliant. Uh, but we are talking about comic book brilliance this week for stuff hitting the rack. This week, there is one comic that rises head and shoulders above everything else to hit the rack this week. From Image, Step by Bloody Step. This is an astonishing piece of work. 
which I'm assuming is going to build and build and build. Basically, we start with a small girl in the snow, curled up in the palm of the hand of a massive metal giant. As the story progresses, the little girl interacts with the giant. The giant seems to be caring for her in some way. We don't know why. Uh, the two communicate and they move through the landscape, interacting with the things that they find there. We don't know who the little girl is. We don't know what this iron giant is all about. We don't know where they are. We don't know where they're going. And everything is silent. Neither the girl nor the giant utter a single word. And when there are other characters who are protagonists interact with briefly, um, they are speaking what is clearly not a human language. Um, there may be actual language behind it, but it's made up by the creators of this astonishing story. Um, much in the way that Mobius did with the SI Garage books. Um, so there's no intelligible language here at all. Everything, everything hangs on the images. And for that to work, you have to have an extremely good writer and an extremely good artist. And I am very impressed by the writers and the artists on this. Uh, Sy Spurrier is a guy whose work I've followed for some time, uh, and I've always admired his work. This, though, this is next-level stuff. Because if you can't write dialogue, and there is no dialogue here, then you have to be very clear with the way you communicate your story vision to your artist. And then if you're the artist, you then have to translate that vision into pictures that absolutely tell the reader everything they need to know about the story because it's the only information that they've got. Uh, the art here is by yeah, Matthias Bergara with colours by uh, Matthias Lopez. Uh, I've probably pronounced both of those names incorrectly and my apologies for that. Uh, but the, the narrative in this art is just amazing. The expression that they get into the face of the little girl. Um, the way the, ro the robot, robot? Metal giants? Movements convey the way it feels about things. The way fight scenes are presented to show them the, the action and the movement. Um, the little girl's reactions to things. Um, you can see, even if you can't see her face, you can see through the body language that's, that's portrayed how she's feeling. And you can you experience with her her fear, and it's it's just just spectacular. I honestly cannot remember when I've seen this kind of storytelling done this well. And I've been knocking around comics for thirty odd years. And one of the very first American comics I picked up uh, was a silent issue of Batman, um, which blew me away at the time. This is so many orders of magnitude 
more complex in terms of not just the story that it's telling, but the way that it's telling it. Very, very seriously, it's hard for me to express quite how brilliant this piece of work is. Uh, I can only encourage you to either find it online uh, or make your way to a comic shop and have a look at it in person. This kind of work is not for everybody. A lot of people hate silent comics, uh, but those people are wrong. So just seriously, please just check it out. It is one of the bravest and best told stories you are going to see in comics this year. That simple. Um, if this doesn't win an Eisner, there's no justice in the world. And honestly, I think the Hugo Awards Committee need to be looking at this as well. It's that good. It's that good. Okay, I think I've gushed about it enough for now. But just trust me, you need to take a look at Step by Bloody Step. I am now absolutely desperate to find out what happens next. So that's Step by Bloody Step from Image. It's 4.50. Uh, it's out this week. And you've just got to read it. It's as simple as that. You've just got to. And with that, we are drawing to the end of the show. Uh, I promised no birdsong this week. Apologies for that last week. I simply didn't have enough content because I'd lost some audio. Um, this week, I fortunately had lots of content. I apologise again for the slightly scratchy production values. Uh, that is down to the fact that for various reasons, in spite of the fact that I started recording this on Monday, uh, and it's not supposed to drop until Thursday, in fact, about 58 minutes worth of this show were recorded uh, this morning, as you're listening to this, if you're listening to it when it drops, uh, on the 24th of February 2022, because I just didn't get a chance to, to do it earlier. Uh, and as such, it's all very last minute, and uh, I don't have the time to iron out the kinks as thoroughly as I would like. So apologies for that. Um, nothing this week on the Geeky Community Notice Board. Uh, I do note um, that the Geek Pub Quiz, which was supposed to have happened uh, on Sunday, February the 20th, did in fact not happen because um, there was some illness. Not COVID, but, you know, uh, Steve and Helen were both ill. Uh, they, they just couldn't do it. So the relaunch of the Geek Pub Quiz is pushed back until next month. Uh, I don't think I have an actual date for it, but it will be on a Sunday evening at half past seven next month. Uh, stay tuned for further details. It will still be at Major Tom's and it will still have some great prizes donated by geeky businesses from Harrogate and indeed elsewhere. If you have anything you'd like to put onto the Geek Community Notice Board uh, or you have uh, questions, comments, uh, suggestions for anything to do with any part of the show, please do get in touch. That's info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Uh, we read everything you send us and we will respond uh, either privately or in, on the show uh, to anything you have to say. We really are interested in your opinions, folks. We really, really are. So all that remains is for me to tell you that this is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media and we will be back next week. Until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Until the next time, we all meet up to go geeking. <laughs>